Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Former Vice President Mike Pence comments on the legal battles former President Trump is facing. We bring you his stance on the ongoing issue of states removing Trump from their ballots. House Republicans are moving toward holding Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress. That's after the president's son defied a congressional subpoena to appear for an interview last month. What's the latest development? Congressional leaders reach an agreement to keep the government funded. Hear why some House Republicans are criticizing the deal, with one calling it smoke and mirrors. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says he's recovering after being hospitalized last week. Now Congress and others want to know why they were kept in the dark for three days. Recently released documents shed light on Jeffrey Epstein's courtroom tactics, including how he answered questions about his relationship with former President Bill Clinton. A Freedom of Information Act lawsuit is shining a light on contact between Dr. Anthony Fauci and scientists from the Wuhan Institute of Virology before the COVID pandemic erupted. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Former Vice President Mike Pence comments on the legal battles former President Trump is facing. Pence says states should not take the former president off their 2024 ballots. Uh, I think these efforts uh, to take the decision away from the American people are really antithetical to the very democracy that uh, the President Biden and many Democrats talk about wanting to defend, uh, removing the former president or any other candidate uh, from the choice of the American people, I, I don't believe is in the interest of the country. Some states are trying to remove Trump from their 2024 ballots, citing the insurrection clause in the 14th Amendment. Pence says what happened on January 6th was not insurrection, but a riot. Former Vice President does say Trump's words on that day were reckless, but added that removing Trump from the ballot isn't the way to go about the issue. Meanwhile, New York Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik talks about potentially being Trump's running mate. An NBC reporter asked the Congresswoman how she'd respond if she were offered the role. I, of course, would be honored to serve in any capacity in a Trump administration. I'm proud to be the first member of Congress to endorse his re-election. I'm proud to be a strong supporter of President Trump, and he's going to win this November. Have you spoken to the former president about the possibility of running as his VP pick? Uh, I'm not going to get into the content of my conversation with President Trump. I talk to him frequently. In September, former President Trump said he liked the idea of having a female running mate. Since then, the media has been speculating who he might choose. Among possible running mates are Arizona Senate candidate Carrie Lake, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, and former Trump White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Confusion within Michigan's Republican Party. The state's GOP accuses its former co-chair of initiating an attempted coup over the weekend. A Saturday statement with the letterhead of the Michigan Republican Party claimed that party members voted to remove former chairwoman Christina Caramo, and that Melinda Pego is now the acting chair. Pego is the former co-chair. The Michigan GOP le later issued a statement dismissing the claims. They wrote, this allegation that Chairwoman Christina Caramo has been removed is patently false. 
The party claims that the votes to remove the chairwoman were illegitimate and that they violated party laws and state election laws. Some members of the Michigan GOP don't agree with Karamo's stance on election integrity, her conservatism, her ideas on party organization. This has caused some conflict within the party. The FBI announced on January 6, three years since the Capitol breach, that they had arrested three January 6 fugitives. The move comes amid concerns about the treatment of dozens of January 6 detainees jailed without trial. The FBI's Tampa division says it executed warrants on the morning of January 6 at a ranch in Groveland, Florida. All three individuals were taken into custody there. The agency wrote on X that the people arrested were Jonathan Daniel Pollock, Olivia Michelle Pollock, and Joseph Daniel Hutchinson III. All had been wanted by the FBI since federal arrest warrants were issued in 2021. They're all charged with assault and resisting arrest. The three defendants are set to appear in federal court today in Ocala, Florida. Former President Trump says he'll attend an appeals court hearing regarding the scope of his presidential immunity tomorrow in Washington, D.C. Trump said on X that he's entitled to immunity since he was president and commander in chief. Trump has maintained the case should be dismissed on the grounds that a former president cannot face criminal charges for conduct related to their official responsibilities. District Judge Tanya Chutkin rejected that claim. Trump's appeal suspended his trial, which is currently set to take place in March. Trump has a busy legal week ahead of him. He and the majority of defendants in the Georgia election case face a motion deadline today. The D.C. appeals court hearing is tomorrow. Thursday, Trump is expected to attend closing arguments in his New York civil fraud trial. The U.S. Supreme Court agreed to rule on Colorado's Trump ballot ban. Oral arguments are set to begin on February 8th. For a closer look at this case and its implications, we're joined live by senior attorney at Pacific Legal, Mark Miller. Mark, why do you think the court agreed to take this case up in the first place? Well, Chris, uh, thanks for having me on. I think, obviously, the Supreme Court realizes whether President Trump is on the ballot or not will impact the nation's future, and that it had almost no choice but to grant review and to put it on a very quick schedule. Got it. And what will the court have to consider when ruling on this? Well, it's very interesting, Chris. You had two different requests that the case that the case be reviewed by the Supreme Court. First, you had the Colorado Republican Party with Attorney Jay Sekulow of the ACLJ, who's an experienced Supreme Court uh, litigator, uh, arguing there were three issues. And then you had Harmeet Dillon and her team on behalf of President Trump filing a uh, petition for writ of cert, asking the Supreme Court to take the case. But they didn't really frame out specific issues the way Seculo did. They just said generally the Colorado Supreme Court got it wrong and Supreme Court, you need to intervene. And in fact, the Supreme Court granted Harmeet's uh, petition on behalf of President Trump, which suggests they uh, want to look at any and all issues around what Colorado did. They don't want to be constrained by limiting the questions they're going to consider, which is unusual. So they could be looking at a broad range of issues. How do you think the court should rule on this case and why? I think uh, you have two very strong arguments. Um, one, you have the Colorado Supreme Court arguing that President Trump, they had a hearing in trial court and the judge in that hearing in Colorado said he was an insurrectionist, but said the trial judge said he was not uh, within the 14th Amendment since the president is not listed as someone who can be barred from the ballot in the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, then on the other hand, you have the arguments being made by, uh, as I said, Ms. Dillon, uh, Mr. Seculo, 
Um, uh, Noel Francisco, former Solicitor General for President Trump, filed his own brief on behalf of the Republican senators. And all of them are making the argument that to take this out of the hands of the voters would be anti-democratic. Um, there's a, another argument being made that is sort of underneath all of this, which is that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, simply says that an individual can't hold the position if they're an insurrectionist. He could certainly run. That may seem practically sort of illogical, but if that's the text of, this, of the 14th Amendment, which it is, you can make a strong textual argument, which is typically yeah. what conservatives rely upon, and say he gets to run, but then he might not get to hold the job. And if so, then it would be the vice president-elect. Um, it could get very interesting after Election Day if Trump is on the ballot and Congress were to decide he is an insurrectionist. And Mark, how do you expect the court to vote here? Do you think it'll be a net, unanimous decision, divided along what lines and why? I think Chief Justice Roberts is known for wanting to have unanimous uh, results in highly charged cases like this. He's not always successful. Obviously, the Dobbs case comes to mind where he was not successful. But he's going to want to do everything he can to get all nine justices to line up behind one result. So as I said, the argument Trump's lawyers made was just, hey, they got it wrong. Look at every issue. And what they're trying to do there, I think, is put it on a T for Chief Justice Roberts to get all the justices to agree on one particular argument. You would then see, uh, after that ruling, maybe concurrences where three or four justices line up behind other uh, arguments and say, well, we would have decided it this way for a different res reason, but we agree with the result. That's what I think you'll see. I think Chief Justice Roberts will do everything he can to make it nine to nothing. And before we go here, just talk us through what's next in this case. So what's next is uh, the Supreme Court, as I said, put on a very fast track. January 18th, Trump's lawyers and anyone who supports President Trump will have to file their briefs. And then by January 31st, so that's just 10 days from now, the 18th. Then on the 31st, almost two weeks later, the uh, respondents, the voters in Colorado who, who started this case off in Colorado, they get to file their response brief. And the, uh, anyone who supports the voters in Colorado that Trump shouldn't be on the ballot file their own briefs. And then the argument is February 8th. Very quick, to say the least, one month from today. All right, Mark Miller, Senior Attorney at Pacific Legal, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Chris. And Hunter Biden will be the focus of two committees when the House returns to full sessions this week. The Judiciary and Oversight Committees will move ahead with a formal contempt of Congress resolution against the president's son. The move stems from the younger Biden ignoring a subpoena to testify behind closed doors. While he did offer to testify before Congress publicly, that offer was rejected by Oversight Committee Chair James Comer and Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan. Comer and Jordan say they have significant evidence suggesting President Biden knew of, participated in, and benefited from his family cashing in on the Biden name. Hunter Biden's attorney said, quote, it's clear the Republican chairman aren't interested in getting the facts or they would allow Hunter to testify publicly. He added, what are they afraid of? The hearing over contempt charges is planned for Wednesday, a day before Hunter Biden is scheduled to make his first court appearance on tax charges. And the White House says Mitch Landrieu is stepping down from his role as White House infrastructure coordinator. A campaign official says Landrieu will join President Biden's re-election campaign as co-chair. Landrieu is a former mayor of New, York, New Orleans. He first joined the White House as a senior advisor to Biden more than two years ago. He was tasked with implementing the bipartisan infrastructure law. Coming up, an update on the harrowing Alaska Airlines flight. 
The missing part of the aircraft that blew off mid-flight was found in a backyard in Portland. A mega winter storm has hit parts of the Northeast with up to a foot of snow. What weather conditions are expected today? More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Leaders announced yesterday they've worked out a budget agreement to keep the government funded through the end of the fiscal year. NTD's Daniel Monahan breaks down the deal for us. The deal between House Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer includes $886 billion in defense spending and $704 billion in non-defense spending. House Speaker Johnson says the agreement speeds up the roughly $20 billion in cuts already agreed to for the IRS and rescinds about $6 billion in COVID relief money that had been approved but not yet spent. According to Johnson, the deal, quote, represents the most favorable budget agreement Republicans have achieved in over a decade. In a letter to members on Sunday, Johnson wrote that the top line of the spending deal constitutes $1.59 trillion for fiscal year 2024. The top line is the overall spending level. But House Freedom Caucus member Representative Andy Biggs challenged that number on X, writing, The D.C. Uniparty's purported top-line spending deal of $1.59 trillion is bogus. $1.658 trillion is the real number once you dig through the smoke and mirrors. Sad to say, but the spending epidemic in Washington continues, with both parties being culpable. Congressman Bob Good also criticized the deal writing Republicans agreeing to spending levels $69 billion higher than last summer's debt ceiling deal with no significant policy wins is nothing but another loss for America. President Biden said the agreement protects important national priorities and rejects deep cuts to programs hardworking families count on. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said it's a good deal for Democrats and the country. Despite the tentative agreement, two funding deadlines are coming up, January 19th and February 2nd. If Congress does not approve the budget deal hammered out by its leaders, the government could still shut down. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says he's recovering after being in intensive care last week. Unnamed defense and Biden administration officials say top leaders weren't told about his condition for days. That allegedly includes President Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Austin's Deputy of Defense. The reported lapse in communication comes amid high tensions in the Middle East. Iran-backed terror groups have been lashing out against U.S. bases and troops, provoking strikes from the U.S. in Iraq and Syria. Austin is 70 and served 41 years in the military, retiring as a four-star army general. He's just under the president in the chain of military command. He needs to be ready at a moment's notice to react to any type of national security crisis, including a nuclear attack. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on what we know about the top defense leader's condition. Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder stated Austin had an elective medical procedure December 22nd and was released from the hospital a day later. He says Austin was sent into intensive care on Monday, New Year's Day, after experiencing severe pain. 
Ryder says the National Security Council and Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks weren't told until three days later on Thursday. The spokesman stated Austin's chief of staff was ill and unable to make notifications before then. Ryder says Austin is recovering well and resumed full duties Friday evening from his hospital bed. Hicks was in Puerto Rico on leave and set to return to Washington, but decided to stay after finding out Austin was taking back full control. Temporary transfers of authority without explanation are not unheard of, but the lack of transparency is raising some concerns in Congress. Senator Roger Wicker, the top-ranking GOP member on the Senate Armed Services Committee, wished Austin a speedy recovery, but says the delay was unacceptable. Wicker accuses the Defense Department of deliberately withholding information about Austin's health for days, calling it a shocking defiance of the law. The Republican senator says the episode erodes trust in the Biden administration and is demanding that lawmakers are given a full accounting of the facts immediately. Democratic Representative Adam Smith put out a joint statement with GOP Congressman Mike Rogers, expressing concern with how the disclosure of Austin's condition was handled. Smith and Rogers asked why the notification took so long, what the medical procedure and resulting complications were, and when the delegation of his duties was made. The two lawmakers are demanding Austin provide details of his health and on the decision-making process that took place, stating transparency is vitally important. The Pentagon Press Association called the slow alert an outrage in a letter to Austin and Ryder, declaring it's critical for Americans to know the top defense leader's health status and decision-making ability, noting growing threats in the Middle East and the key security role the U.S. plays in Israel and Ukraine. Austin took responsibility for the late disclosure Saturday night, stating he could have done a better job of notifying the public about his health. The Pentagon says Austin has no plans to resign. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. We're getting a better idea of the court tactics that Jeffrey Epstein used with the latest unsealing of his court documents last Friday. The files show that the late businessman and sex offender pleaded the fifth in a lawsuit brought by Virginia Dufre, who accused him of sexual abuse. Epstein's refusal to answer questions in Jufre's lawsuit against his longtime associate, Ghislaine Maxwell, was disclosed in a filing in Manhattan federal court. The Fifth Amendment of the Constitution gives people the right not to incriminate themselves. Jufre's lawyer said Epstein answered fifth to about 600 questions they and Ghislaine Maxwell's lawyers asked. They say his refusal to answer extended to questions that posed no real risk of incriminating him and included at least three about Epstein's relationship with former President Bill Clinton. In a subsequent filing, Epstein's lawyers said that their client would have invoked the Fifth Amendment if called upon to testify at trial, citing the burdens he would face and the expected media circus generated by his personal appearance. Epstein allegedly killed himself in a Manhattan jail cell in August 2019. Friday's unsealed filings also show that several other people accused of aiding in his sexual abuses, also pleaded the fifth in various litigation related to him. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The missing part of the Alaska Airlines aircraft that blew off mid-flight was found in a backyard in Portland. This incident led to the nationwide grounding of specific a Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft and numerous flight cancellations. Here's more on that story. 177 passengers and crew on an Alaskan Airlines flight survived an alarming experience after a section of the plane blew off the aircraft mid-flight. The plane had just taken off six minutes before the incident. The Boeing 737 MAX 9 jet safely returned to the Portland airport with no serious injuries on board. 
Although there were some minor injuries, National Transportation Safety Board Chair Jennifer Homendy said it could have been much worse. We are very, very fortunate here that this didn't end up in something more tr uh, tragic. No one was seated in 26 A and B, where the where that door that um, door plug is. Hamidi said the cockpit door flew open and the depressurization ripped headset parts off the heads of both the captain and co-pilot. She also said it was extremely lucky the plane had not yet reached cruising altitude when passengers and flight attendants might be walking around the cabin. A federal official said yesterday that particular airplane wasn't being used for flights to Hawaii. A warning light indicating a possible pressurization issue lit up on three different previous flights. Hours after the incident, the FAA ordered the grounding of all MAX 9s until they could be inspected. Alaska and United Airlines are the only U.S. airlines flying the MAX 9. Alaska Airlines said it canceled 170 flights yesterday and 60 more today. Cancellations will continue through the first half of the week. The Sunday cancellations affected nearly 25,000 guests. A plea went out to local Portland residents for help in finding the missing fuselage plug. The search ended yesterday when a local teacher found the missing piece in his backyard. A fast-moving winter storm is sweeping across the U.S. with the southern plains expected to see blizzard conditions and the southeast flooding. Parts of New Mexico, Colorado, Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas and Nebraska could get up to a foot of snowfall. By this afternoon, Louisiana, Mississippi and Alabama will feel the force of the storm as well. A winter storm blanketed the east coast yesterday. Footage shows people across the east shoveling snow and taking pictures in what appeared like a winter wonderland. According to local media, several communities in Massachusetts recorded 12 inches of snow. Today, the southeast is at risk of tornadoes, heavy wind and flooding. Up to five inches of rain could fall across the region. The storm system is expected to continue moving further into the southeast and northeast tomorrow. Coming up, Chinese scientists at Dr. Anthony Fauci's Institute in 2017. We have more on what a freedom of information lawsuit is revealing. And the new study says that crib videos could provide a clue in a mysterious illness that kills young children. We'll have the details soon when we return. Newly released emails are shedding more light on the relationship between Dr. Anthony Fauci and the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. The emails show that scientists working at the Wuhan lab visited Fauci's agency at the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, in 2017. This happened just a few months before the NIH lifted a pause on high-risk research, virology research. The emails were obtained by the nonprofit research group U.S. Right to Know through a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit against the NIH. The emails show that Shi Zheng Li, who is a senior scientist at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, visited the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in June 2017. Shi researches SARS-like coronaviruses of bat origin and directs the Center for Emerging Infectious Diseases at the Wuhan lab. Meanwhile, Fauci is appearing before Congress today and tomorrow to answer questions. Topics will include his changing position on masks, how the agency he headed funded risky research in China, and how he downplayed post-infection immunity. 
Fauci is sitting down behind closed doors to face questioning from the House Committee on the Coronavirus Pandemic. It's the first time he'll answer questions under oath since November 2022. Fauci agreed to appear and answer questions if he could bring two personal lawyers and two government lawyers with him. And more in more China news coming up tonight on NTD's China in Focus. Is it getting easier for Chinese nationals to enter the U.S.? The Biden administration cut down the vetting process for Chinese immigrants coming through the southern border. That says the border is seeing a spike in illegal crossings. And home monitoring videos of cribs could help scientists find the cause of sudden and unexplained deaths in childhood, or SUDC. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on a study published Thursday by the journal Neurology. It shows that some such deaths might be linked to seizures. Febrile seizures are seizures or convulsions that occur in young children. They are triggered by a fever, usually above 101 degrees Fahrenheit. Dr. Oren Davinsky says they are typically benign and kids outgrow them. There's no long-term consequences of having these seizures. Uh, and that's true for the vast majority of cases, but unfortunately it's not true for all of them. Researchers at NYU Langone Health now say that seizures during sleep are a potential cause of at least some cases of sudden unexplained death in childhood. Young Hayden had his first febrile seizure in June of 2022. Justin Fell, his dad, thought he would be fine. And it was just a matter of letting this run its course. And it was every parent's nightmare. The last bedtime of 17-month-old Hayden was heartbreakingly normal. Crib video shows the toddler in pajamas playing happily as his parents and sister sang Wheels on the Bus with his twin brother. The next morning, Hayden's dad couldn't wake him. The tot had become one of several hundred seemingly healthy U.S. toddlers and preschoolers each year who suddenly die in their sleep and autopsies can't tell why. Jaden's mom, Katie, says they gave researchers the crib video from the night that he passed away, which was recording all night. By that Friday, we had donated his brain to SUDC, and we had enrolled him and ourselves in the study. NYU researcher Laura Gould says they have analyzed seven such videos. Five of them were continuously recording, which the researcher says they learned the most from. All five of them displayed a convulsion shortly before the child's death. Gould lost her own 15-month-old daughter, Maria, to what later was named SUDC in 1997. Gould later co-founded the nonprofit SUDC Foundation and helped establish NYU's registry of more than 300 deaths, including the first seven videos offered by families for research. SUDC is estimated to claim over 400 lives a year in the U.S. Most occur during sleep, and just over half, about 250 deaths a year, are in one to four-year-olds. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And COVID flu and RSV are likely to peak early in the new year. That's according to the CDC. For a look at what's to come, I spoke with family medicine specialist Dr. Jill Wagoner. Dr. Jill Wagner, thank you so much for joining us. What is the CDC saying about respiratory illnesses like the flu, COVID, and RSV this year? They are anticipating that we are about to see a spike in infections. 
which is not that unusual for this time of year right after the holidays, but probably a little worse than, than usual. Got it. And how does this year compare to last year? Last year, right now, we're a little bit behind what we were last year. But I think the issue and the major concern is as our systems start to get stressed and more and more people get ill because, you know, there's a, a time period before the actual illness shows up that we could start to, to kind of get a little tight. Okay. And what parts of the country are hardest hit by respiratory illnesses right now? Right now, it's uh, the southeast part of the United States uh, seems to be really hit hard. And then the West Coast, uh, so California, Texas, uh, Oklahoma, kind of on this area, Georgia, Alabama. Uh, but the, the thought is that it's going to spread all across the country. And particularly since you've got a big storm anticipated, then people will be closer even again. Got it. And and why why is it anticipated to spread across the country and not to stay where it is? Well, whenever the thing with the holidays is people travel. And so they travel all over the country. And because most of the time during the holidays, they're spending time with family and loved ones. So they tend to be uh, in close proximity to each other. Well, most of those viruses, you don't get sick immediately. It may take a week uh, you know, three to, to seven days before the illness starts to show up. And so when that starts to happen, you go back home and now you're sick at home and you spread it to other people. Okay. And the new COVID variant, JN.1, has become the dominant COVID strain in America. Um, how, if at all, does it vary from previous strains? It's not that different in terms of the degree of illness, but I can tell you what I'm seeing in my practice. I see that the symptoms tend to last a little bit longer. So people are sick for longer and some of those residual symptoms, the cough, uh, a little bit of shortness of breath tends to last a little bit longer as well. And how concerned should we be about JN.1 given that it's become the dominant COVID strain? I think we always have to be concerned because we're not quite sure how the new variants are going to present themselves. So whenever a new one comes up, we're not familiar with it. We don't know all of the symptoms. Uh, so we have to be concerned. It does not appear to make people sicker. It does not appear to be any more contagious than the ones that we've had before who were super contagious. Uh, it's just that every time the virus mutates, you have to worry that it is going to escape uh, our current immunity. And that's always the thing you're looking for. Now, I want to come back to where we started with the flu, COVID, and RSV, looking at all three of these. You know, we talk about them all the time, but what's the difference between how we experience these three illnesses? Well, I, I say to my patients, the flu is like somebody hit you with a brick wall. For most people, when it's influenza, they were fine at 10 in the morning, and by 4 in the afternoon, they just feel like somebody hit them with a ton of brick. It's a sudden onset illness. The things that we see with RSV, it tends to be more respiratory symptoms, i.e. more coughing, wheezing, those kinds of things. The COVID variants 
can go from anywhere from GI symptoms being your primary symptom to headache and some kind of upper respiratory thing. So they're different. They're subtle differences. The best thing, though, is to get checked. If you can get tested so you'll know what you're dealing with, that's the best option so you can get the best treatment. All right, Dr. Jill Wagoner, thank you so much for your time and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thank you for having me. A miracle rescue in Japan. A woman in her 90s was saved from a collapsed house five days after a powerful earthquake struck the country. Footage shows emergency workers carrying an elderly woman out of the collapsed building on Saturday. According to Japanese public broadcaster NHK, two women were found trapped in the rubble. The elderly woman was found responsive, while another woman in her 40s showed no vital signs. The death toll from the devastating magnitude 7.5 quake that struck Japan on New Year's Day has risen to at least 168. That's as more than 100 people still remain missing, according to local authorities. The rains have hampered relief efforts, delaying assistance to more than 30,000 evacuees and making the search for survivors difficult. Switching gears, we're heading to Europe for some short headlines from Germany and other countries. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky meeting Japan's foreign minister on her first visit to Kyiv. Minister Yoko Kamokawa's trip on Sunday was unannounced. Due to an air alert, she had to hold a news conference with her Ukrainian counterpart in a shelter. Kamokawa pledged Japan's continued support for Ukraine. Japan's new export controls prevent it from shipping weapons to countries at war. However, Japan is planning to ship Patriot air defense missiles to the United States. This, in turn, would allow the U.S. to send more support to Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin on Saturday vowed to back soldiers who defend Russia's interests. Putin assured their families that Moscow would offer support when needed. He was speaking at a meeting with families of Russian soldiers who have died in Ukraine. Putin later sat down with them for dinner as they celebrated Orthodox Christmas. The president of the European Council, Charles Michel, might leave his role early. Michel will run to become a member of the European Parliament in June. If elected, he'd have to quit his position as president earlier than the official end of his term. I've worked hard and I will continue to do so until the last day of my European role. We know that this summer, after the elections in June, it's time for a democratic transition. After the elections, the European Commission will also have the chance to pass the baton onto a new team. German farmers are starting a week of nationwide protests today. They vowed to blockade major traffic and logistics routes. That's in response to plans to phase out agricultural subsidies. The government might take that step as it scrambles to fix its finances. Farmers warn that an end to tax breaks will drive them out of business. And one farmer says losing tax cuts isn't the only problem they're facing. We don't just have the tax issue in the farming industry. We are also being very challenged with environmental and animal protection issues. That's not a problem for us. We are happy to do that. But what's required of us is overwhelming, and that's the big problem we have been faced with for the past two years now. Unfortunately, it can't go on like that. Ecuador's most wanted prisoner has disappeared from jail. Authorities have launched an operation to locate him.
The missing criminal wasn't named in the announcement, but there is some indication that it's the leader of the Los Choneros criminal group, known as FITO. He was serving a 34-year sentence for drug trafficking and murder. Los Choneros is a notorious criminal organization involved in various crimes, including murder, drug trafficking, and extortion. The group is said to have influence in Ecuador's major prisons. And turning to South America, Bolivia has made its largest ever cocaine seizure with a record-breaking haul worth over $200 million on the local market. The value could be twice as high in Europe, where the illegal shipment was probably headed. Officials say the drugs were hidden in wooden flooring materials and likely destined for the Netherlands. The operation led to the arrest of four suspected drug traffickers in nine separate raids. Coming up after the break, human remains are flying to the moon as the first U.S. lunar landing mission in decades kicks off. We'll return with the controversy behind the space launch. And what happens when man's best friend makes one of your worst nightmares come true? More shortly here on NTD News Today. Peregrine Mission 1 lander, which will mark the first of the touchdowns on the moon in decades, launched from Cape Canaveral this morning. The commercial mission prompted a last-minute meeting at the White House prior to the launch. The lunar mission has raised ethical concerns with members of the Navajo tribe who asked the Biden administration to delay the flight. It comes as the mission is carrying human remains destined for a lunar burial. NTD's Cost Jimenez has more. Peregrine Mission 1 is set to mark the first lunar touchdown for an American-made spacecraft since 1972. The mission also marks the start of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services, or CLPS, initiative. It allows the U.S. space agency to outsource the launch and transport of its lunar cargo to private companies. Additionally, the mission includes over 60 memorial capsules containing cremated human remains and DNA. But according to the president of the Navajo Nation, this could be an affront to many indigenous cultures. Calling it deeply disturbing and unacceptable to indigenous people and many other tribal nations. The moon is highly revered by many Native American tribes and has sacred standing in Navajo cosmology. Moreover, the Navajo Nation argued that the moon shouldn't be turned into a graveyard or waste site and should receive the same protection as places on Earth, such as the Grand Canyon. The private companies providing these lunar burial services are Celestis and Elysium Space. Celestis said they are aware of the concerns made by the Navajo Nation president but ultimately dismissed them, arguing that leaving the remains was an expression of celebration rather than desecration. The issue has raised questions over who holds authority over the moon. Still in its early stages, rules pertaining to the mission are still evolving. It's not the first time Navajo Nation has expressed concerns about burials on the moon. In 1999, NASA's Lunar Prospector mission deliberately crashed a spacecraft into the moon, which carried the remains of former astronaut Eugene Shoemaker. 
The unmanned Peregrine 1 is due to land on the Moon on February 23rd. Cost MNS, NTD News. And paleontologists have discovered a new species of long-necked, duck-beaked dinosaur. According to the Argentine government's scientific and research agency, the prehistoric reptile went extinct 90 million years ago in Patagonia. The fossil remains belong to four dinosaurs of the Rabakisauridae family. The species is called Cytosaura mare. Excavations began in 2012 in central Argentina. They were at a site with rocks that date from the late Cretaceous period, around 93 and 96 million years ago. This is an excavation to withdraw what we believe is a large sauropod or even a titanosaurus. But the excavation is a bit complicated because, as you see, the bones are under a big sandstone of about two meters in size, and it makes the extraction a bit difficult. The name comes from the Latin words for star and lizard, chosen due to the shape of its tailbones. With an estimated weight of over 16 tons and a length of 65 feet, Cytosaura mare is considered the biggest of the Rabakisauridae dinosaurs for now. South Korea's world-renowned ice fishing festival kicked off in a remote mountain town near the border with North Korea. Over 100,000 locals and tourists came out on the first day of the event, participating in activities like ice fishing and catching fish with their own hands. The festival has become a symbol of national security and peace for the town. It also boosts the local economy with an annual turnover of more than $70 million. Although the temperature fell under 20 degrees Fahrenheit on Saturday, the festival was still able to offer a unique winter experience. There is no bigger pleasure than this. I feel that catching the fish with my own hands in the cold is very unusual and more enjoyable than buying the fish and eating it. So I'm really excited. This is my second time at the ice festival and I really wanted to try catching with my hands and I was very successful today. So, and I'm going to eat these uh, tonight on the barbecue. And a dog in Pittsburgh recently gobbled up a really expensive meal. When its owners came home, they found a $4,000 pile of cash eaten up and shredded. So Carrie hopped on her phone and, and is Googling, dog ate money, what do I do next? <laughs> and uh, yeah, and that yeah. was just kind of a waiting game. Yeah, we, uh, we also called our bank and asked them what they suggested and kind of explained the situation. Um, they said this actually happens from time to time. Uh, that, you know, dogs are really attracted to that smell. Clayton Law, one of Cecil's owners, said he took the money out of the bank for a backyard renovation project and left it on the kitchen countertop. When he returned, he found his four-legged friend standing over a pile of banknotes that had been torn apart. Co-owner Carrie Law said their bank said they would replace banknotes that had most of the serial number intact. The pair says it was out of a character for Cecil, who had never done anything like this before, and added that they have retrieved most of the money. Well, if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Will former President Trump still face trial in Georgia? His legal team is trying to stop it from happening. 
A Freedom of Information Act lawsuit is shining a light on contact between Dr. Anthony Fauci and scientists from the Wuhan Institute of Virology before the pandemic erupted. House Republicans are moving toward holding Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress. That's after the president's son defied a congressional subpoena to appear for an interview last month. What's the latest development? Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says he's recovering after being hospitalized last week. Now Congress and others want to know why it was kept quiet for three days. An update on the harrowing Alaska Airlines flight. The missing part of the aircraft that blew off mid-flight was found in a backyard in Portland. Get the whole story coming up. And tonight the stage is finally set. Michigan versus Washington for college football's national championship. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to break it down. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Former President Trump is trying to have his Georgia election case dismissed. His attorneys filed new motions this morning. Trump's legal team filed four motions in Fulton County Superior Court. They're trying to dismiss the charges by Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis based on presidential immunity. The district attorney is accusing Trump and his allies of trying to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. Trump's team calls Willis's prosecution politically based. They say the indictment in this case charges President Trump for acts that lie at the heart of his official responsibilities as president. Trump says he'll attend an appeals court hearing regarding the scope of his presidential immunity tomorrow in Washington, D.C. Trump said on X that he's entitled to immunity since he was president and commander in chief. Trump has maintained the case should be dismissed on the grounds that a former president cannot face criminal charges for conduct related to their official responsibilities. District Judge Tanya Chutkin rejected that claim. Trump's appeal suspended his trial, which is currently set to take place in March. Trump has a busy legal week ahead of him. He and the majority of defendants in the Georgia election case face a motion deadline today. The D.C. appeals court hearing is tomorrow. Thursday, Trump is expected to attend closing arguments in his New York civil fraud case. Former Vice President Mike Pence comments on the legal battles former President Trump is facing. Pence says states should not take the former president off their 2024 ballots. Uh, I think these efforts uh, to take the decision away from the American people are really antithetical to the very democracy that uh, the President Biden and many Democrats talk about wanting to defend. Uh, removing the former president or any other candidate uh, from the choice of the American people, I, I don't believe is in the interest of the country. Some states are trying to remove Trump from their 2024 ballots, citing the insurrection clause in the 14th Amendment. Pence says what happened on January 6th was not an insurrection, but a riot. The former vice president does, does say Trump's words on that day were reckless, but added that removing Trump from the ballot isn't the way to go about the issue. Meanwhile, New York Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik talks about potentially being Trump's running mate. An NBC reporter asked the Congresswoman how she'd respond if she were offered the role. 
I, of course, would be honored to serve in any capacity in a Trump administration. I'm proud to be the first member of Congress to endorse his re-election. I'm proud to be a strong supporter of President Trump, and he's going to win this November. Have you spoken to the former president about the possibility of running as his VP pick? Uh, I'm not going to get into the content of my conversation with President Trump. I talk to him frequently. In September, former President Trump said he liked the idea of having a female running mate. Since then, the media has been speculating who he might choose. Among possible running mates are Arizona Senate's candidate Carrie Lake, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, and former Trump White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders. With the Iowa caucuses around the corner, what key factors will influence the outcome? We have with us live to discuss Raven Harrison, political strategist and former congressional candidate. Raven, over to you. What's your take? Well, we've got a lot going on uh, with the caucuses. The key is to see, you know, this is a do or die for the Haley camp and the DeSantis camp. And there's been rumors that they're kind of pulling their efforts together to make a, a credible run against Trump, who is still the front runner. Right. And Trump himself has a lot going on this week in the courts. How do you think that might play into it all, considering that these these caucuses are so soon? Well, I think that there are the, the camps of DeSantis and Haley are really counting on the legal trouble to go their way because he's, a, he's got an unmatchable lead. But I think that there's serious doubt about whether these will proceed. There are so many procedural issues going on with the legal battles with President Trump. And given the current environment, it just seems like a huge distraction, an already crowded distraction field. But I don't think this will weigh anything. The voters have overwhelmingly said that they favor Trump and the numbers and the polls support that. Yeah, so what are the stakes here in terms of DeSantis? There was a lot of hope for him, considering that the governor has endorsed him. Uh, he's put a lot of effort into Iowa, and yet he hasn't fared as well as some had hoped. Correct. I think it's been a messaging strategy from the start. He came out comparing himself to Trump and then attacking Trump, which is something that didn't resonate with the voters. He's now been saying he's done a Grassley, which is means that he's been to all 99 counties in Iowa, and the poll number have yet to move. Even if Nikki Haley has pulled their numbers together, we'll be able to reach okay. Trump at this point. So right now, we're looking for president. You're breaking up a little there, Raven. Um, next, I want to ask you, you know, Nikki Haley is, seems to be doing be better in the polls. What do you think is her potential path to victory? I think her best path at this point is able to, uh, to secure uh, the rumblings President likely, but her strategy is predicated on, on this bipartisan. She has a lot of Democrats funding her and supporting her, and that is a message that is not going over well with the majority of the Republican base and the MAGA uh, coalition. So she doesn't seem to have a clear path to how she is going to unite. She just seems to be drawing support from both sides of the aisle. So it'll be interesting to see how she, she pulls her messaging together. And on that front, you know, we, we just saw both Haley and DeSantis appearing on CNN in a debate. Uh, what do you think of appearances like this on a, a station such as CNN and their effect? Well, I think that it's an attempt. It still goes in the, in the footsteps of Donald Trump, who really went into a town hall that you know, made lightning news around the world of going in what they call the lion's den. Well, what we've got here is them willing to say that they're willing to broach across the aisle. The issue is we have a fundamental divide between the Democrat and the Republican platform. So trying to woo people with the idea of compromise when people are leaving 
um, the Democrat Party doesn't seem to be a good messaging strategy, but I think they're both at this point have to pull out all the stops if they're going to have any chance of trying to resonate a message with voters that works before the primaries. And how crucial is a strong standing at this point in the primaries? It is critical. If they are not able to resonate this with uh, with Iowa voters, I mean, they are the heartland. They are usually the indicator and the benchmark of how the primaries are going to shape up for candidates. So if they cannot connect this message, if they cannot put a dent into this lead that President Trump has, it's all but over and they will need to then decide who they're going to throw their support behind. He has an unmatchable lead and that is Trump country and we are facing real kitchen table issues in this election. And how much of this do you think plays into or is because of Trump's presence there, not attending the televised debates, but really getting down on the ground? I think that that has a lot to do with it. Trump is a, a people person. He, he has never shied away from going out there and engaging directly. And his message has been the same. Uh, he's focusing on the kitchen table issues and what he has done in the past, the border, which is number one, and uh, securing the border and getting the economy back off of life support and getting us out of these two wars. That's what we want to hear right now. They don't want to hear uh, a lot of speculative of how we're going to reach across with the other side. They want to see how we're going to fix the immediate problems that the American people face. All right. Thank you so much, Raven Harrison, political strategist and former congressional candidate. Appreciate it. Thank you. Confusion within Michigan's Republican Party. The state's GOP accuses its former co-chair of initiating an attempted coup over the weekend. A Saturday statement with the letterhead of the Michigan Republican Party claimed that party members voted to remove former chairwoman Christina Caramo and that Melinda Pego is now the acting chair. Pego is the former co-chair. The Michigan GOP later issued a statement dismissing the claims. They wrote, this allegation that chairwoman Christina Caramo has been removed is patently false. The party claims that the votes to remove the chairwoman were illegitimate and that they violated party laws and state election laws. Some members of the Michigan GOP don't agree with Caramo's stance on election integrity, her conservatism, or her ideas on party organization. This has caused some conflict within the party. The FBI announced on January 6th, three years since the Capitol breach, that they had arrested three January 6th fugitives. Dozens of January 6th detainees are still jailed without trial. The FBI's Tampa division says it executed warrants on the morning of January 6th at, at a ranch in Groveland, Florida. All three individuals were taken into custody there. The agency wrote on X that the people arrested were Jonathan Daniel Pollock, Olivia Michelle Pollack and Joseph Daniel Hutchinson III. All had been wanted by the FBI since federal arrest warrants were issued in 2021. They are all charged with assault and resisting arrest. The three defendants are set to appear in federal court today in Ocala, Florida. Hunter Biden will be the focus of two committees when the House returns to full session this week. The Judiciary and Oversight Committees are set to move ahead with a formal contempt of Congress resolution for the president's son. The move stems from the younger Biden ignoring a subpoena to testify behind closed doors. While he did offer to testify before Congress publicly, that offer was rejected by Oversight Committee Chair James Comer and Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan. Comer and Jordan say they have, quote, significant evidence suggesting President Biden knew of, participated in, and benefited from his family cashing in on the Biden name. Hunter Biden's attorney said, quote, it's clear the Republican chairman aren't interested in getting the facts or they would allow Hunter to testify publicly. 
The lawmakers have expressed willingness for a public testimony after a private one, which they say is standard procedure. The hearing over contempt charges is planned for Wednesday, a day before Hunter Biden is scheduled to make his first court appearance on tax charges. Coming up, Chinese scientists at Dr. Anthony Fauci's Institute in 2017. We have more on what a Freedom of Information lawsuit is revealing. And recent release documents shed light on Jeffrey Epstein's courtroom tactics, including how he answered questions about his relationship with former President Bill Clinton. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Newly released emails are shedding more light on the relationship between Dr. Anthony Fauci and the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. The emails show that scientists working at the Wuhan lab visited Fauci's agency at the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, in 2017. This happened just a few months before the NIH lifted a pause on high-risk virology research. The emails were obtained by the nonprofit research group U.S. Right to Know through a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit against the NIH. The emails show that Shi Zheng Li, who is a senior scientist at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, visited the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in June 2017. Shi researches SARS-like coronaviruses of bat origin and directs the Center for Emerging Infectious Diseases at the Wuhan lab. Meanwhile, Fauci is appearing before Congress today and tomorrow to answer questions. Topics will include his changing positions on masks, how the agency he headed funded risky research in China, and how he downplayed post-infection immunity. Fauci is sitting down behind closed doors to face questioning from the House Committee on the Coronavirus Pandemic. It's the first time he'll answer questions under oath since November 2022. Fauci agreed to appear and answer questions if he could bring two personal lawyers and two government lawyers. And in more China news coming up tonight on NTD's China in Focus. Is it getting easier for Chinese nationals to enter the U.S.? The Biden administration cut down the vetting process for Chinese immigrants coming through the southern border. That's as the border is seeing a spike in illegal crossings. And some home monitoring videos of cribs could help scientists find the cause of sudden unexplained deaths in childhood, or SUDC. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on a study published yesterday, Thursday, by the journal Neurology. It shows that some such deaths might be linked to seizures. Febrile seizures are seizures or convulsions that occur in young children. They are triggered by a fever, usually above 101 degrees Fahrenheit. Dr. Oren Davinsky says they are typically benign and kids outgrow them. There's no long-term consequences of having these seizures. Uh, and that's true for the vast majority of cases, but unfortunately it's not true for all of them. Researchers at NYU Langone Health now say that seizures during sleep are a potential cause of at least some cases of sudden unexplained death in childhood. Young Hayden had his first febrile seizure in June of 2022. Justin Fell, his dad, thought he would be fine. And it was just a matter of letting this run its course. And it was every parent's nightmare. The last bedtime of 17-month-old Hayden was heartbreakingly normal. 
crib video shows the toddler in pajamas playing happily as his parents and sister sang Wheels on the Bus with his twin brother. The next morning, Hayden's dad couldn't wake him. The tot had become one of several hundred seemingly healthy U.S. toddlers and preschoolers each year who suddenly die in their sleep and autopsies can't tell why. Jaden's mom, Katie, says they gave researchers the crib video from the night that he passed away, which was recording all night. By that Friday, we had donated his brain to SUDC, and we had enrolled him and ourselves in the study. NYU researcher Laura Gould says they have analyzed seven such videos. Five of them were continuously recording, which the researcher says they learned the most from. All five of them displayed a convulsion shortly before the child's death. Gould lost her own 15-month-old daughter, Maria, to what later was named SUDC in 1997. Gould later co-founded the nonprofit SUDC Foundation and helped establish NYU's registry of more than 300 deaths, including the first seven videos offered by families for research. SUDC is estimated to claim over 400 lives a year in the U.S. Most occur during sleep, and just over half, about 250 deaths a year, are in one to four-year-olds. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says he's recovering after being in intensive care last week. Unnamed defense and Biden administration officials say top leaders weren't told about his condition for days. That allegedly includes President Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Austin's Deputy of Defense. The reported lapse in communication comes amid high tensions in the Middle East. Iran-backed terror groups have been lashing out against U.S. bases and troops provoking strikes from the U.S. in Iraq and Syria. Austin is 70 and served 41 years in the military, retiring as a four-star Army general. He's just under the president in the chain of military command. He needs to be ready at a moment's notice to react to any type of national security crisis, including a nuclear attack. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on what we know about the top defense leader's condition. Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder stated Austin had an elective medical procedure December 22nd and was released from the hospital a day later. He says Austin was sent into intensive care on Monday, New Year's Day, after experiencing severe pain. Ryder says the National Security Council and Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks weren't told until three days later on Thursday. The spokesman stated Austin's chief of staff was ill and unable to make notifications before then. Ryder says Austin is recovering well and resumed full duties Friday evening from his hospital bed. Hicks was in Puerto Rico on leave and set to return to Washington, but decided to stay after finding out Austin was taking back full control. Temporary transfers of authority without explanation are not unheard of, but the lack of transparency is raising some concerns in Congress. Senator Roger Wicker, the top-ranking GOP member on the Senate Armed Services Committee, wished Austin a speedy recovery, but says the delay was unacceptable. Wicker accuses the Defense Department of deliberately withholding information about Austin's health for days, calling it a shocking defiance of the law. The Republican senator says the episode erodes trust in the Biden administration and is demanding that lawmakers are given a full accounting of the facts immediately. Democratic Representative Adam Smith put out a joint statement with GOP Congressman Mike Rogers, expressing concern with how the disclosure of Austin's condition was handled. Smith and Rogers asked why the notification took so long, what the medical procedure and resulting complications were, and when the delegation of his duties was made. The two lawmakers are demanding Austin provide details of his health and on the decision-making process that took place, stating transparency is vitally important.
The Pentagon Press Association called the slow alert an outrage in a letter to Austin and Ryder, declaring it's critical for Americans to know the top defense leader's health status and decision-making ability, noting growing threats in the Middle East and the key security role the U.S. plays in Israel and Ukraine. Austin took responsibility for the late disclosure Saturday night, stating he could have done a better job of notifying the public about his health. The Pentagon says Austin has no plans to resign. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. We're getting a better idea of the court tactics that Jeffrey Epstein used with the latest unsealing of his court documents last Friday. The files show that the late businessman and sex offender pleaded the fifth in a lawsuit brought by Virginia Jufrey, who accused him of sexual abuse. Epstein's refusal to answer questions in Jufre's lawsuit against his longtime associate, Ghislaine Maxwell, was disclosed in a filing in Manhattan federal court. The Fifth Amendment of the Constitution gives people the right not to incriminate themselves. Jufre's lawyer said Epstein answered fifth to about 600 questions they and Ghislaine Maxwell's lawyers asked. They say his refusal to answer extended to questions that posed no real risk of incriminating him and included at least three about Epstein's relationship with former President Bill Clinton. In a subsequent filing, Epstein's lawyers said that their client would have invoked the Fifth Amendment if called upon to testify at trial, citing the burdens he would face and the expected media circus generated by his personal appearance. Epstein allegedly killed himself in a Manhattan jail cell in August 2019. Friday's unsealed filings also show that several other people accused of aiding in his sexual abuses, also pleaded the fifth in various litigation related to him. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A fast-moving winter storm is sweeping across the U.S. with southern plains expected to see blizzard conditions and the southeast flooding. Parts of New Mexico, Colorado, Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, and Nebraska could get up to a foot of snowfall. By this afternoon, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama will feel the force of the storm as well. A winter storm already blanketed the East Coast yesterday. Footage shows people across the East shoveling snow and taking pictures in what appeared like a winter wonderland. According to local media, several communities in Massachusetts recorded 12 inches of snow. Today, the southeast is at risk of tornadoes, heavy wind, and flooding. Up to five inches of rain could fall across the region. The storm system is expected to continue moving further into the southeast and northeast tomorrow. And dramatic footage from the stormy weekend. A destructive tornado tore through southern Florida, causing sparks and flames as it hit buildings and power cables. Video footage captured the tornado moving rapidly through residential areas and a marina with fireballs of green sparks bursting into the air. Officials issued a tornado warning in the area. They didn't report any injuries and reported only minor damage. The missing part of the Alaska Airlines aircraft that blew off mid-flight was found in a backyard in Portland. This incident led to the nationwide grounding of specific Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft and numerous flight cancellations. Here's more on the story. 177 passengers and crew on an Alaskan Airlines flight survived an alarming experience after a section of the plane blew off the aircraft mid-flight. The plane had just taken off six minutes before the incident. The Boeing 737 MAX 9 jet safely returned to the Portland airport with no serious injuries on board. Although there were some minor injuries, National Transportation Safety Board Chair Jennifer Homendy said it could have been much worse. We are very 
very fortunate here that this didn't end up in something more tra uh, tragic. No one was seated in 26 A and B where, the, where that, door, that um, door plug is. Hamidi said the cockpit door flew open and the depressurization ripped headset parts off the heads of both the captain and co-pilot. She also said it was extremely lucky the plane had not yet reached cruising altitude when passengers and flight attendants might be walking around the cabin. A federal official said yesterday that particular airplane wasn't being used for flights to Hawaii. A warning light indicating a possible pressurization issue lit up on three different previous flights. Hours after the incident, the FAA ordered the grounding of all MAX 9s until they could be inspected. Alaska and United Airlines are the only U.S. airlines flying the MAX 9. Alaska Airlines said it canceled 170 flights yesterday and 60 more today. Cancellations will continue through the first half of the week. The Sunday cancellations affected nearly 25,000 guests. A plea went out to local Portland residents for help in finding the missing fuselage plug. The search ended yesterday when a local teacher found the missing piece in his backyard. Up next, China sanctions five American defense companies as punishment. Find out why, plus why Boeing took a tumble in the stock market. German farmers up in arms blocking highways in a massive protest. Find out what's driving them into the streets. A manhunt is underway in Ecuador after the country's most wanted criminal disappeared from prison. What do we know about him? More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to discuss China's recent sanctions on U.S. companies. Beijing announced sanctions yesterday on five American defense-related companies. Don, why did China sanction these companies? Uh, according to a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson, uh, the sanctions were uh, apparently in response to Washington's arms sales to Taiwan. So last month, the State Department approved a $300 million equipment sale uh, to the island. And uh, this was to maintain uh, help uh, maintain Taiwan's tactical information systems and uh, other rela uh, defense related things. Um, but, you know, here, here's a little background information to help us understand uh, this move uh, a little bit better. So the U.S. switched diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China in the 70s. But according to U.S. law, it's still bound to ensure that Taiwan has the ability uh, to defend itself. Um, so that's a little bit of information. But still, China, uh, the foreign ministry spokesperson said that uh, the arms sales uh, still seriously undermines China's sovereignty and security interests. China claims that the move has seriously jeopardized peace and stability uh, in the Taiwan Strait. And the reason why uh, Beijing is saying this is because it views democratically governed Taiwan as part of its own territory, even though it has never actually ruled the island. And because of this U.S. arms sales to Taiwan, it's a frequent point of tension between Washington and China. Um, and the companies that are going to be sanctioned here are uh, BAE Systems, Aligned Tech Systems, and uh, three other U.S. companies. Uh, now, as for what the sanctions actually do, China will freeze any property or assets uh, the companies have in China, and it's going to ban people and organizations in China from doing business with them.
And so what, what's the impact here on the U.S.? Right. Uh, this is a very good question. The sanctions yesterday apparently is an upgraded countermeasure. Uh, and of course, it's intended to punish these U.S. companies. Uh, so by imposing these uh, sanctions, uh, you know, China could be thinking that uh, these companies may realize that uh, crossing one of China's red lines would lead to the loss of the Chinese market. Um, I mean, in theory, at least, this could be the case. Uh, but it's unclear what impact, if any, that these sanctions would actually have on the companies because uh, American defense contractors generally don't sell to China. So the impact there could be questionable. Uh, you know, and many of the times uh, such sanctions like these could be symbolic in nature, actually, uh, without uh, anything further than that. Uh, or it could be an act of deterrence, perhaps. Uh, but, you know, it, it is worth, worth pointing out that these sanctions come just uh, less than a week before Taiwan's presidential election. So there may be some connection there. All right. What else should our viewers know about the business world today, John? Don? Yeah, just one quick update here. Uh, Boeing's shares tumbled, actually, more than 8% in morning trading today. Uh, this comes after the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration temporarily grounded some 737 MAX jets. And rival Airbus's shares were actually up 2% on Monday. And the European uh, plane maker has expanded its market shares since two Boeing MAX crashes in 2018 and as well as 2019. And CEO Dave Cahoon has been trying to assure investors that Boeing is getting back on better footing, uh, but the aircraft manufacturer could still lose billions of dollars in value after this event. All right. Thank you, Don. Thank you. And switching gears, we are heading to Europe for some short headlines from Germany and other countries. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky meeting Japan's foreign minister on her first visit to Kyiv. Minister Yoko Kamikawa's trip on Sunday was unannounced. Due to an air alert, she had to hold a news conference with her Ukrainian counterpart in a shelter. Kamikawa pledged Japan's continued support for Ukraine. Japan's new export controls prevent it from shipping weapons to countries at war. However, Japan is planning to ship Patriot air defense missiles to the United States. This, in turn, would allow the U.S. to send more support to Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin on Saturday vowed to back soldiers who defend Russia's interests. Putin assured their families that Moscow would offer support when needed. He was speaking at a meeting with families of Russian soldiers who have died in Ukraine. Putin later sat down with them for a dinner as they celebrated Orthodox Christmas. The president of the European Council, Charles Michel, might leave his role early. Michel will run to become a member of the European Parliament in June. If elected, he'd have to quit his position as president earlier than the official end of his term. I've worked hard and I will continue to do so until the last day of my European role. We know that this summer, after the elections in June, it's time for a democratic transition. After the elections, the European Commission will also have the chance to pass the baton onto a new team. German farmers started a week of nationwide protests today. The move is in response to plans to phase out agricultural subsidies as the government scrambles to fix its finances. Images showed convoys of tractors and trucks, some adorned with protest banners on German roads and sub-zero temperatures. 
Police reports say roads and highway ramps were blocked in multiple locations, causing traffic jams during morning rush hour. Farmers have vowed to blockade major traffic and logistics routes until next Monday. They warned that ending tax breaks will drive farms out of business. The backlash from farmers last week already prompted the government to make unexpected changes to the plan that would do away with subsidies for agriculture. A truck driver here discusses the protests. What the government is doing to us, increasing the road tax, increasing the price for diesel and so on, no one can afford this anymore. Everybody is affected, and the problem is everyone going shopping notices it and has to suffer. Ecuador's most, most wanted prisoner has disappeared from jail. Authorities have launched an operation to locate him. The missing criminal wasn't named in the announcement, but there is some indication that it's the leader of the Los Choneros criminal group known as FITO. He was serving a 34-year sentence for drug trafficking and murder. Los Chonero is a notorious criminal organization involved in various crimes, including murder, drug trafficking, and extortion. The group is said to have influence in Ecuador's major prisons. And turning to South America, Bolivia has made its largest ever cocaine seizure with a record-breaking haul worth over $200 million on the local market. The value could be twice as high in Europe, where the illegal shipment was probably headed. Officials said the drugs were hidden in wooden flooring materials and likely destined for the Netherlands. The operation led to the arrest of four suspected drug traffickers in nine separate raids. Coming up in college football, it's Michigan versus Washington tonight for all the marbles. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss. And music therapy can bring physical as well as emotional healing. How does it work? We'll hear from a nine-year-old with a heart defect more shortly here on NTD News Today. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, a big weekend in the NFL. Philadelphia collapsed against the New York Giants. What are the Eagles' chances heading into the playoffs here? You know, I'm actually not that down on them because the postseason is like a fresh start. and They definitely needed one. They were only the third team to lose five of their last six and still make the playoffs. That's how good of a start they had. You know, it's almost like their minds have been on the postseason ever since they clinched a playoff berth like a month ago. I mean, maybe that's why they faltered so much. And they actually catch a break in taking Tampa Bay in the opening round because the Bucks have the worst record of any playoff team. They just happen to win like the weakest division. Now, meanwhile, the Buffalo Bills, they're like the hottest team right now. Winners of five straight. That was an exciting win in Miami last night. Now, for the Dolphins, they went from possibly getting to host a playoff game to having to play at the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs in the opening round. That looks like the best matchup this weekend. Now, Dave, elsewhere in the league, the Washington Commanders and the Atlanta Falcons have already fried their head coaches, yet no news out of New England. Is there a feeling that this will be, for, this will be it for Bel Belichick? Yeah, there certainly is. I mean, if they do, I still think he'd have his pick of places to coach. Um, I mean, I'll grant, he's won six Super Bowls. That's more than any other head coach. That's more than most every other franchise, for crying out loud. I'll grant he hasn't won without Tom Brady. But, you know, Phil Jackson didn't win any titles without Michael Jordan or Kobe, Kobe uh, Bryant either. So the best still need the best to win. 
Now, he made it sound yesterday like he'd be open to a personnel change, uh, a role change a bit as far as personnel authority. I think he has final say is what he was at least trying to um, presume with that. But the talent has not really been there since Brady left. Clearly, he's shown he can coach. Maybe they hire someone else for that personnel role and keep him as a head coach. It seems like anything's uh, possible at this point. Hmm. And Dave, tonight we have the College Football National Championship, Washington versus Michigan. Who do you like? I like Michigan. I mean, maybe not in a blowout, but it seems like they really have something special there. You know, they've had plenty of adversity. Their coach has been suspended twice this season. They've kind of developed this us versus the world mentality, I think. Obviously, they have a great defense. Statistically, it's number one as far as fewest points, fewest yards. The Huskies are a great team, too. They seem to thrive on being the underdog as they are here again. They've just had so many close wins. I think that's 10 straight by 10 points or less. I just can't see them continuing that. I expect it to be a low-scoring game. Michigan finds enough offense to win. All right. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, guys. And staying with sports news, dreaming of making it big in baseball, teenage brothers traveled hundreds of miles away from home to a remote island in South Korea. There, the sport and their team are now the closest thing they have to family. Take a look. A new baseball team is breathing life into this remote South Korean island. It was founded by Dukjuk's only high school, which had been on the brink of closure due to the island's rapidly aging population. Now a few dozen teenagers have flocked here to train at the school, in the hope of eventually making it to the major league. I came here with my brother, as there are a lot more opportunities here. If I work hard here, I can be a main player, so I'm working even harder. If I keep doing well, then I can also be a professional baseball player. It's really great. Anson Young and his brother traveled hundreds of miles away from their home to join the baseball team, set up in 2022 by a former manager of an elite university team. The school offers both regular classes and specialized training, and in its first year, welcomed 28 students, with 13 more joining in 2023. Before the team was established, Dukjuk had been on the brink of losing its last school because of a nationwide policy that shuts down schools with fewer than 60 students. Thanks to big Korean baseball dreams, that has now been avoided. These players want to play in the professional league, and so we're trying to train them well and send them to the professional team. Like many other aging rural areas, the island was struggling to retain and attract youngsters. It now has a population of 1,800, down from 12,000 in the 1950s, and the majority of them are elderly. Some aren't happy that local grants are going into funding a school of outsiders. But many others, like this 82-year-old, who's lived on the island for more than half a century, say they're delighted to see fresh faces. Although Dukjuk is less than two hours away from the city of Incheon, it remains quite isolated from the mainland and is much less developed. For the Ahn brothers, that suits them just fine as it means they're free to focus on their sport. There really is nothing here and all we have is the field and the ball and baseball is all there is for us, so it can get pretty boring, but I think it helps us focus on our goal. And in health news, probiotics can help maintain a balanced gut ecosystem. 
But did you know that some of the foods that you eat may be destroying your gut biome? Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. A wide variety of chronic diseases are linked with an imbalance in the gut microbiota. The gut microbiota comprises bacteria, fungi, and other microorganisms in our intestines. Probiotics can help to maintain a balanced gut microbiota and intestinal function. But did you know that the foods you eat may be destroying your intestinal probiotics? So what can you do about it? First, you'll want to avoid ultra-processed foods. They usually contain high levels of additives, preservatives, and colorants. These foods do not provide you with the necessary nutrients you need, such as fiber for our intestinal probiotics. They also contain high levels of saturated and trans fats, added sugars, and salt. These directly alter gut microbiota composition and microbial metabolites. They cause metabolic diseases and inflammation. Next, you'll want to avoid sugar and artificial sweeteners. Excess consumption of sugary snacks can rapidly increase blood sugar levels. This affects the balance of microorganisms in the gastrointestinal tract. Excessive sugar intake encourages the growth of harmful bacteria and inhibits the growth of beneficial bacteria. This imbalance of intestinal microbiota can lead to many health problems. This includes chronic inflammation of the intestines, metabolic diseases, high blood pressure, high blood glucose, and high blood cholesterol. And finally, you'll want to avoid high fat foods. Both saturated and unsaturated fats are essential nutrients, but trans fats are harmful to the human body. Many processed and fried foods contain trans fatty acids. These affect the imbalance of the intestinal microbiota. It can cause inflammation and disrupt the integrity of the intestinal mucosa. A similar problem exists with excessive intake of saturated fatty acids. Therefore, monitoring the intake of saturated fatty acids and avoiding trans fatty acids in our daily diet is important. In addition, unsaturated fatty acids may have anti-inflammatory and antioxidant effects. This can help to maintain intestinal health. You can find these healthy fats in wild-caught fish, olives, avocados, and nuts. And next, music therapy can have a lifelong impact on hospitalized children. And it's not just emotional. An Australian hospital uses music to stabilize heart rates so that procedures can go more smoothly. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Hello, 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 above, above so high. Soothing notes reverberate from this acoustic guitar. These melodies were written for patients at the Queensland Children's Hospital. At just 10 weeks old, Ruby came into the world with a heart defect. She started music therapy when she was just one month old. She feels nice and relaxed. She goes to sleep very easy, very calming. For 30 years now, music therapists have filled the corridors of this hospital with warm tunes. Dr. Jeanette Kennelly was one of the first to use this technique. We actually receive referrals from doctors, from nurses, from other allied health in the hospital about children who are having difficulties with being in hospital. Evie is a nine-year-old with cystic fibrosis. She has to stay at the hospital on a regular basis. It took the edge off um, the procedures. It, there was calmness in the room and watching Evie smile was worth it. Dr. Kennelly has already overseen 750 young patients who benefited from music therapy. A promising sign. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. 
A dog in Pittsburgh recently gobbled up a really expensive meal. When its owners came home, they found a $4,000 pile of cash eaten up and shredded. So Carrie hopped on her phone and is Googling dog ate money. What do I do next? <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then it was just kind of a waiting game. Yeah, we uh, we also called our bank and asked them what they suggested and kind of explained the situation. Um, they said this actually happens from time to time. Uh, that, you know, dogs are really attracted to that smell. Clayton Law, one of Cecil's owners, said he took the money out of the bank for a backyard renovation project and left it on the kitchen countertop. When he returned, he found his four-legged friend standing over a pile of banknotes that had been torn apart. Co-owner Carrie Law said their bank said they would replace the banknotes that had most of the serial numbers intact. The pair says it was out of character for Cecil, who had never done anything like this before and added that they have retrieved most of the money. Well, that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.